Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode 378 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 17. Moonwalk number three. On the last episode, we left Gene and Jack after they had completed Moonwalk 2 and were sleeping in the lunar module trying to get some rest for the busy day that lay ahead. The final investigation of the moon by the astronauts of Apollo 17 started shortly after Mission Control awoke them on Wednesday, December 13, 1972. Day 3, with the Texas Aggie War Hymn. This is Apollo Control at 160 hours, 24 minutes. Switching now to air ground one for the initial wake-up call to the crew of Challenger. Asleep at this time at Taurus Littrell. Command module America still has some 47 minutes remaining in this front side pass. We'll stand by for the wake-up call, which should uh, be beamed up in uh, about a half a minute or so. Selection. 
and uh, he said that if you can find some maroon dirt today instead of orange, you'll probably get a lot more cooperation out of him. I figured the gold team might do that. You know, I woke up to a lot of pleasant thoughts, but never to an Aggie before. Hey, Gordo, don't forget I'm a gold, I'm a boiler maker. Roger. I feel like one right now. Tell the gold team flight director we'll find about just about anything he wants today. Okay, I'll do that. The uh, Challenger looks as good as ever. Uh, no problems at all through the night. Heads up, Sandy. How's America? It's in the same shape. Uh, just looking along. Ron's been up for a few hours now and uh, really gathering up the data. How's Sandy, Gordo? Uh, Challenger, the name of the game today is to uh, stay with the, the EVA prep timeline. We're not going to talk much to you. We'd like except to uh, bug you a little and stay on your back to keep with the timeline if at all possible. We'd like to get out on time. All right. Okay, Gordo, that's uh, been our motive all along, and we will stay with it. Uh, as of right now, we're one hour behind. Is that correct? That's affirmative, uh, although uh, if you stay on the normal timeline, uh, that's fine with us. We don't need to gain any, but we just don't want to lose any from uh, where we're starting now. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Yeah, how are you this morning? This is Apollo Control. A reference to Haggies has to do with the fact that the flight director... Gold Team Flight Director Jerry Griffin is an alumnus of Texas A&M University. The wake-up music this morning was the Aggie War Hymn, E Pluribus Gigum, and Jerry proceeded to gig the crew with his own brand of music. In trying to honor Mission Control's request to stay on time, the astronauts ate breakfast, dressed, and got out on the surface as quickly as they could. Still bone-tired, they loaded the rover and took off for another seven hours, this time for a round trip to the steep slopes of the North Massif, then over to the base of the sculptured hills and to the Van Serg crater, Chipping and hacking with burning hands and aching arms, the stretched tendon in Jean's leg hurt with every step he took. Their first stop was a split boulder about three stories high that had rolled and bounced down the mountain in a prehistoric avalanche and cracked into several huge segments when it slammed to a rest. Jack was finally in his element and performed a decisive field study of that gigantic stone to piece together its volcanic history, while Gene huffed his way up a slope and took a set of panoramic pictures of Jack at work. It's very crystalline, I'll tell you. It's not a branch, not like house rock. Not to take anything away from house rock, though. Hey, uh... Bob, there's a lot of, uh, 
Uh, Manling on a very shallow slope of a, of a fracture here on one of the uh, upslope blocks. I would assume it's just part of the Davis pickup as it rolled down, but if it's worth sampling, you might think about Okay, uh, Gene, if you can get that fairly readily, why don't you, uh, you can perhaps just scoop it up with the bag. That's exactly what I can do. If you can get up to the rock, then. Uh, it'll be in my, it'll be in my flight line stereo, and it's going to be bag 557, and I'll take an answer and show you where it came from. Okay, copy that. It's part of the rock and world of work. Man, here's a big... Here's a big white class. There's one on top about a foot and a half across, and here's one must be two feet across, three feet. And that's in the blue-gray. Be like a kid playing in a sandbox. Well, Bob, I, uh, like I've done the best I can, I would, uh, I'd say that there are pretty clearly inclusions of, uh, blue-gray in the, uh, and let the city Gabro, you're near the contact. Or LMP. Okay, and uh, I gave you 557, five, I believe, didn't I? Roger, we have that one. Okay, Bob, by accident, I didn't think I could do it, but I got a sample of the inclusion. And it's uh, in bag 539. And it's, it's uh, blue-gray with light-colored... Uh, Put these in my bag. Inclusions in it, all right. But the whole thing seems to be pretty well altered or metam metamorphosed. <sighs> Compared to the major rock we just sampled, to the other blue gray rock. And hey, Bob, I think that inclusion will give you uh, uh, an example of what, uh, uh, what this thing what the North City Gabbro did to the uh, Blue Gray Breccia. Okay, we copy that, and uh, we're ready for you guys to leave this rock and uh, press on and either get the rake soil and uh, cores near that crater down below the rock, just a shade, or else to go on to some other different variety rocks in the area. In later years, Gene would often be asked if taking a scientist to the moon had been the right decision. Now, there was no doubt in his mind that it was. For not only had Jack carried his load as a crew member, but Joe Engel and Gene, without having the encyclopedic knowledge of a professional geologist, would never have complimented each other as well. That was, of course, no insult to Joe but a simple fact. Jack Smith belonged up there and more than proved his worth. Back in Houston, Tracy had stolen the show. Jim Hart, host of Today's Show and an old friend, had coaxed Barbara into letting their ponytailed daughter go on national television. Wearing her turtleneck sweater and the maxi skirt with the mission emblem, Tracy sat on a stool and watched them on the moon while the nation watched her. She calmly explained the meaning of the mission patch and confidently chatted about what her daddy was doing at the moment. It looks like they're having a ball, she said, identifying her father as the one with the red stripes on his suit and helmet. 
When Jim asked if we might find water up there, Tracy giggled. If they find water, they're in the wrong place. She broke some hearts when Jim asked what souvenir Jean might bring home for her. I can't tell you. Jim persisted, and Tracy still refused, saying it was a secret. Jim kept coaxing, smelling a good story, until she finally gave in. He's going to send me back a moonbeam, she said. Back on the moon, dust and fatigue were definitely causing problems. Those persistent fine grains of lunar dirt had worked into the moving parts of the astronauts' tools, and things were breaking down. Then the makeshift fender gave way and showered the astronauts with more dust wherever they drove. We have it, and I'm sure that Ed would like a good dusting job up front. Well, there is so much. I'll dust it if you can't read it. I'll get it. I'll get it. Just over the gate. It's about 1 to uh, 125 on the uh, step. Okay, copy that. Boy, everything is really bad now. Now everything had to be gripped so tightly their entire upper bodies, particularly their hands and forearms, felt as heavy as granite. The dirt, which had once only rimmed their fingernails, was now caked deep beneath each fingernail, as if driven in by hammers. Still, at the sculptured hills, the astronauts ended their rock hunt with a bit of fun. They were now accustomed to the light gravity and could move around freely. So climbing steadily up the slope was tiring, but presented little difficulty. So instead of walking back down, Jean went into a legs-together kangaroo bounce and boing, boing, boinged his way back to the rover. Jack pretended to ski, and his radioed comments of sush, sush, shush mystified mission control. By the time the astronauts reached their last stop, Van Serg Crater, they were exhausted from climbing, digging, and hauling rocks. Yet they continued collecting their samples and taking their pictures. Nearing the end of their time at Van Serg, Jack argued to stretch their safety margin and stay longer. But flight director Jerry Griffin called it a ball game. It was time to go. On the third moonwalk, the crew collected 66 kilograms or 146 pounds of lunar samples and took another nine gravimeter measurements. Smith, 
had seen a fine-grained rock, unusual for that vicinity, earlier in the mission and had stood it on its edge. Before closing out the EVA, he went and got it. Subsequently designated sample 70215, it was, at 17.7 pounds, the largest rock brought back by Apollo 17. A small piece of it is on exhibit at the Smithsonian Institution, one of the few rocks from the moon that the public may touch. Back at Challenger, before concluding the moonwalk, the crew collected a breccia rock, dedicating it to the nations of the earth, 70 of which were represented by students touring the U.S. and present in Mission Control in Houston, Texas at the time. Portions of this sample, known as the Friendship Rock, were subsequently distributed to the nations represented by the students. A brief ceremony was held on the moon for this event. Represented by the 
young people in uh, Houston today. And we hope that they will, that rock and the students themselves will carry with them our good wishes, not only for the new year coming up, but also for themselves, their countries, and all mankind in the future. Next, the crew dusted each other off, loaded the final boxes of rocks, then Jack climbed the ladder and disappeared into the hatch. By then, Gene and Jack had stayed longer and traveled further on the surface of the moon than any other crew. They had covered about 19 miles and collected more than 220 pounds of rock samples. And, even before they were aboard, scientists in Houston were crowing that this had been the most meaningful lunar exploration ever. Jack and Jean were living proof that the Apollo program had paid dividends. While Jack cleaned up inside, Gene drove the rover about a mile away from the lunar module and parked it carefully so the television camera could photograph their liftoff the next day. As Gene got out of the rover, he took a moment to kneel and with a single finger scratched Tracy's initials, T-D-C, in the lunar dust knowing those three letters would remain there undisturbed for many years. Alone on the surface, Gene hopped and skipped his way back to Challenger, his thoughts racing wildly as he sought to encompass this experience. Just being there was a triumph of science to be celebrated for ages, but it was more than a personal dream come true for he felt that he represented all humanity. Like Gene Cernan, I believe there was a sense of eternity about Apollo. Sir Isaac Newton once said, quote, If I have been able to see farther than others, it was because I stood on the shoulders of giants. End quote. I chose to name the first episode of this podcast after Newton's quote. To Gene, right now, every man and woman who put in long hours to get Apollo 17 to the moon figuratively stood with Gene beside the lunar lander in that odd sun-washed darkness. Every astronaut who had gone into space who made it possible for him to fly a little higher, stay a little longer, was at his side. These were the giants upon whose shoulders Gene stood as he reached for the stars. He could almost feel the presence of the Apollo 1 crew of Roger Chaffee, Gus Grissom, and Ed White, and all the other astronauts and cosmonauts who died in pursuit of the moon. They had carried on in their names. Gene took one last unfiltered look at the earth and was enveloped by a sense of selfishness because he was unable to adequately share what he felt. He wanted everyone on earth to experience this magnificent feeling of actually being on the moon. But that was not technologically possible, and Gene knew that. However, 
there was a bit of guilt at being the chosen one. Jean put a foot on the pad and grabbed the ladder. He knew that he had changed in the past three days and that he no longer belonged solely to the earth. Forevermore, he would belong to the universe. With everyone back home listening, he ignored the notes on his cuff checklist and spontaneously spoke from his heart. Bob, this is Gene and I'm on the surface. And I'd uh, take me a last step from the surface back home for some time to come, but we believe not too long into the future. I'd like to just let what I believe history will record that America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. And as we leave the moon and Taurus Literal, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return with peace and hope for all mankind. I will repeat that for clarity. Gene said, quote, As we leave the moon and Taurus Lathro, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return, with peace and hope for all mankind. End quote. Gene lifted his boot from the lunar dust, and as he turned, he again saw the small sign pasted beneath the ladder by some unknown well-wishing worker, a phrase that he repeated every time he entered or left the challenger. The message read, Godspeed, the crew of Apollo 17. And Gene climbed on board. Sadly, Gene did not live to see the next footsteps on the moon. Even just 24 years ago, Gene was asked if he thought it would take so long for another moon mission. Here's what he said then. Then I think 25 years later, I'd still be the last man on the moon. And when we came back in December, we launched on December 7th, which is another day in American history in 1972, and came back and, and when I came back in the 19th, and when we came back to the, to the Cape, to Kennedy, I got on my soapbox, you know, and said, Apollo, Apollo 17 isn't the end. It's just the beginning of a whole new era in the history of mankind. And I'm waving my flag up there and saying, not only are we going to go back to the moon, we're going to be on our way to Mars by the turn of the century. Well, I'm only half wrong. My timetable's a little bad. My, we're, my destination is correct, we're, we're, but we're, we're just a little late in getting there. So being a last man on the moon 25 years later is, is a very dubious honor. Uh, I know now that it's going to last through the end of the millennium, but it won't long, last long after that. It, it's, it's disappointing, quite frankly, to be here 25 years later and still, still be the last man to have left his footprints on the surface of the moon. I'd like to put the word temporarily or for now or something else on that title, but they wouldn't let me. Uh, <laughs> It says, in a way, what we haven't done in the last 25 years, because we had the capability to reach Mars within a decade after I came back. And here we are today, and although the space shuttle is the most fantastic flying machine that we've ever 
designed, created, and, and, and flown. And the space station is going to have tremendous scientific uh, develops, uh, returns for us. Uh, it's exploiting space, and we're no longer in the exploring mode of space. I mean, we, you know, curiosity is the essence, uh, is a hallmark of, of, uh, of our human existence. We've got to know what's over the hill and around the corner. We were, we, we've been that way for eons and eons of years, and we will continue to be that way. And there's no greater unknown than, than this universe which surrounds us. Are we here alone? How long have we been here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? When it was the beginning, and where is the end? And is there life on Mars? You know, we can go on and, and how far is far? Look what the, hell, uh, what the Hubble telescope has told us. How many, how, for every one answer it, it, it came back with, it gave us 100 questions. So we need to explore. We need to get back there. So being the last man in the moon 25 years tells us what we haven't been doing. What we are doing in terms of exploiting space and development of space station is great. Got a lot of advantages, a lot of, a lot of pros to that. But we ought to parallel. We can't afford not to continue on to look into the future. And, and in addition to that, young kids, we, we've got a whole generation of young men and young women. I mean, out of college. I'm not so sure some of you young men out here were even born when I were last walked on the moon. Now think about that. That's an incredulous thought. So look at the teenagers today. I mean, if this happened before they were born, we've been there, done that. You know, let's get on with it. Going to the moon is old hat. Uh, let's get on and, uh, and, and look to the future. So I strongly believe, no, I didn't think I would be the last man here 25 years later. But what the good news is, the kids that are going to take, we're going back to the moon and we're going to go on to Mars and the, and, and the kids that are going to take us there are in our classrooms today. They're not a dream. They're not a figment of our imagination. They're there. And I continue to tell them to take the word impossible out of their dictionary. It no longer exists. If I can walk on the moon before they were born, I want every teenager in this country to tell me what he can't do if he's willing to dream and, make him, and, and commit himself to making his dreams come true. Back inside the limb, the astronauts did some last-minute cleaning and threw out a bunch of very expensive gear from the spacecraft. Cameras, tools, backpacks, and other now-useless material were flung to the surface. They had to shed weight if they were going to get off the moon safely. Mission planners had worked out the exact balance needed, and every container of rocks they brought aboard was weighed on a handheld fish scale calibrated for one-sixth gravity before being stored. They had just enough fuel to get them into orbit with almost no margin for error. So the overall weight of the spacecraft, its crew and cargo of rocks was critical. The astronauts had to throw out nearly everything that wasn't nailed down. Jack and Jean were exhausted, so they rested well that night. But the next morning, the astronauts were up early to give NASA a wake-up call. This is Apollo Control at 183 hours, 32 minutes. Uh, we're about 14 minutes away from the scheduled wake-up time for Apollo uh, 17, the lunar module crew. However, they beat us to the punch this morning. And we just got a rousing rendition of Good Morning to You, sung by the uh, uh, crew of uh, Gene Cernan and Jack Schmidt on the lunar surface. Uh, surgeon reports that uh, the two uh, crewmen appear to have gotten a good night's sleep, uh, six to uh, seven hours. And uh, 
We'll pick up with the tape replay of that uh, good morning rendition from the crew and then uh, follow it live. astronauts got busy, donned their suits, helmets and gloves, talked with mission control, and readied the Challenger for departure as Ron Evans passed overhead in the Command Module America. Of course, Command Module pilot Evans had remained in orbit to take observations, perform experiments, and await the return of his crewmates a few days later. Here's how Ron described his experience. So while we're in that orbit, Gene Sarnan and Jack Smith uh, jumped in the lunar module, and they separated. They went down and picked up rocks, or whatever they do on the moon, you know. Uh, <laughs> and and, and uh, uh, I lit the engine on my spacecraft and went back up into a circular orbit that was 60 miles high all the way around as you're going around. And that's okay, except they left me all by myself for three and a half days. Let me take you with me on just one of those orbits as we go around. Now visualize yourselves. We're going to start this orbit on the back side of the moon. That's the side you can't see. But we're in the sunshine. Sun is shining back there. And you might say, how's the sun shining on the back side? Uh, now visualize if you have, we'll say, you, from here you look up the moon and you see a quarter moon that means that three-quarters of the backside is in the sunshine. So we're in that sunshine, see? And then as we continue around the backside of the moon, pretty soon, there's an earth rise. The earth comes up above the horizon, you know? And, and the round part of that crescent earth comes up above the horizon of the moon. And when that happens, we have line-of-sight communications with everybody down here on the earth. So I finally get a chance to talk to the people in Mission Control and say, hey, I did this and this and this and this. And they, they come back and say, well, you should have done this and this and this. <laughs> but anyhow, anyhow, we can talk to them, see? We, we, and, and I can talk to them, and, and uh, it's great. And then you continue on around the front side of the moon, and then pretty soon we pass out of that little crescent piece of the moon. 
That means the sun sets, right? So the sun disappears behind the moon. And then the only light you have up there is earth shine, earth light. See, the sun is shining on the earth, reflecting back up at the moon, and that earth shine was about four times as bright as the brightest moonlit night here on the earth. So I can look down at the moon, I can see the outlines of the craters and the valleys and, and uh, this type of thing. And then we will continue on around the front side of the moon now. And one hour after the earth came up, the earth sets. And when the earth sets, again, the round part of that crescent earth drops below the horizon of the moon and leaves these little two points of the crescent and they go blink, blink. They disappear. Sun isn't shining. There's no earth light. You have no communication with anyone on this earth. And you are in the blackest black you could ever imagine. And yet over the radio, you hear this noise. And it goes, ooh, whoop, ooh, whoop, 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 whoop. I never did find out what that was either. <laughs> Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 378 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 17, Moonwalk 3. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. First, a very important announcement. Someone has hacked my Twitter account. And they did it so well, I haven't been able to convince Twitter that it is really me. Isn't that frustrating? You know I am me, and I know I am me. But Twitter just will not believe that I am me. I guess nobody at Twitter listens to the podcast. Or maybe they do. If you work at Twitter and can help me out, I surely would appreciate it. My handle, of course, is Space Rocket Hist. After nine years, it sure is a shame to lose that account. So, I guess I should advise everyone who subscribes to Space Rocket Hist on Twitter to unsubscribe because, unfortunately, it's no longer me. Someone really did an excellent job of hacking. If only that knowledge could be turned to good instead of evil. <laughs> Remember, unsubscribe to Space Rocket Hist on Twitter. Our next episode will be posted in a couple weeks, hopefully by December 23rd. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 202 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. And, by the way, it is now the best time of year to perform the Emoji Maneuver. If you make a donation before the end of the year and make a donation in January, 
you can quickly advance to emojis. And if you don't have any emojis now, you can quickly advance to the rocket emoji. So at this unique time of year, it is a quick way to get an emoji or advance your emojis. Had just a few thoughts here. First, I want to talk about our Christmas donor bonus. If you have given $50 or more during 2021 and have not received a prize already, I would like to send you out your choice of an SRH logo magnet or a couple of SRH stickers. Just email me with your choice and your return address at uh, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Remember, you have to have given $50 in the calendar year of 2021, and I need to receive all of these before December 31st. I don't know if you heard Gene mention that they had plans to go to Mars in a decade. Now, I think I can corroborate this because on one of my trips I took, uh, I talked to an engineer in Huntsville, Alabama, and he mentioned this as well. Apparently, they were working on a plan to use Apollo hardware to go to Mars. Of course, I mentioned, or I asked, that the astronauts couldn't possibly stay in the command module for a six-month trip to Mars. And he said, oh, no, 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 we, we worked that out where they, were, they didn't have to. And they were even going to spin the spacecraft to create some artificial gravity. It made me think of using something like a maybe a Skylab facility, like the uh, tanks there that they use for Skylab. But I don't know if that is what they were planning. That's just my guess at what I would do if I were them. And I was using Apollo hardware. Now, this engineer said... The target year for launch for this to Mars was actually 1985. Now, wouldn't that have been something if we could have done that? That would have been more miraculous than the moon landing, quite truthfully. I wish that would have happened. In reflecting on this episode, I guess the thing that impressed me most was the overall sadness that I felt that this mission was ending and this was the last mission to the moon that would be manned and that the future meant low earth orbit the days of great manned exploration were ending man's greatest achievement was complete and there were no concrete plans to go back to the moon or even to Mars because that was not funded. The Apollo program that started out so poorly with Apollo 1 turned out to be so successful with its ending on Apollo 17. And wasn't it sad that Gene never saw another person 
return to moon to the moon so he is still as of this recording the last man to walk on the moon in case you are wondering what we're going to do after apollo 17 we i had planned to uh go back to where we left off before i began to uh, finish up these Apollo missions, and that was back to 1971. And I can't remember exactly where it was. It was after that first mirror, uh, not mirror, it was after the first uh, Salyut. And uh, I think it was, I think it's going to be that Mars probe for the Soviets, I believe, but don't hold me to that. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. But that's what I'm planning on doing is going back to that and continuing there in the timeline format. For those interested in the farm progress, we had very little these past two weeks. It was disappointing. Now, we did get our five-foot fiberglass shower installed, but we ran into a problem. The plumbing failed its pressure test. And the plumbers can't seem to find where the leak is. There is a fear that the leak is beneath the concrete in the basement. They, the plumbers mentioned that maybe when the guys uh, replaced that floor in there, that they used the jackhammer and they, they uh, cut a hole in one of the pipes there. Boy. I hope that's not the case. Now, we did have our gas fireplace installed. Of course, that didn't take very long. It took about an hour. But that was something. Other than that, we have been pretty much stopped working on it. So very little work on the house past couple of weeks. Okay, let's move on. Over the last fortnight, we had seven new contributions. I would like to thank Sven B. from Australia, who donated at the Orion level and earned a satellite emoji. Eric P. from Illinois donated at the Apollo level and earned a shooting star emoji. Jim M. from Tennessee donated at the Apollo level and earned a satellite emoji. Marie from Belgium donated at the Gemini level and earned a moon emoji. Declan S., donated at the Vostok level. Devin M. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And Roy B. from the UK pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Sadly, our Patreon donors are down to 244. That is four less than last time. Our total donors for 2021 have reached 415. And our goal, of course, was 500, which I don't think we're going to make in the next uh, few weeks. So I think perhaps we can make 425. That's what I said last week. That's only 10 more donors. So maybe and perhaps we can make 425 by the end of the year. Let's hope so. So far, December has been significantly less in donations than last year. Usually November or December are good months, so if you can't afford it, we would appreciate your support. 
To do that, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. You know, when I was packing away my Christmas decorations last year, I really thought we would be in our new home by this Christmas. Well, our new home is currently our RV, and my decorations are packed deep in my mom's basement. Mike was so sweet, he found me a tree while we were walking in the woods one day. It is sitting outside on our front porch, and I smile every time I see it. So, it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas around here. Now, for the drawing for this episode, the winner will get the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet, or the SRH Archive Magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Tom Colbert. Tom Colbert, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 415 of you who contributed thus far in 2021. My sources for this episode were NASA, The Last Man on the Moon by Gene Cernan, Grant Stoltz' interview with Gene Cernan, Apollo 17 Flight Journal, the Apollo 17 Surface Journal, the Apollo 17 Timeline, the Internet Archive, Flickr, Ron Evans, and Wikipedia. And that's all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 379 posted by December 23rd. Merry Christmas, everyone, and so long for now.